Well, good morning. Let's get started here. John chapter 4. Join me in John 4 and help me write a sermon, all right? That way we'll have something to do next hour. No, we'll, we'll go through this text, though, as, as if it were the beginnings of sermon prep, which would be the same as you just going through the text to study it, asking questions, figure out what's there. Our theme for the morning, uh, our call to commitment will be a commitment to sharing the good news. Uh, we could call it evangelism, but sometimes we, we push that into a sphere of, yeah, thank you back there, get that door closed for you. Uh, we push evangelism into the sphere of some kind of professional work. We could call it outreach, but really we should work to define outreach as something different than evangelism because outreach could be you taking a meal to your neighbor and trying to just get to know them and build a bridge. Uh, we should think of outreach as serving evangelism, but not equate them as one and the same. Now, if somebody talks about outreach and they mean sharing the gospel, then fine, we'll take that definition. Um, so... Call it what you will, but what we're studying is what it means to share good news with people who desperately need to hear it. Uh, so if you think of that as outreach, that's fine. Um, but just know sometimes you're going to hear people talk about outreach, and it's going to be more in that context of uh, acts of kindness, community service, and they're using those as a bridge to share the good news. Uh, so there's nuance to the words but what we're looking at in John 4 is the actual sharing of the good news. It's the story of Jesus meeting the woman at the well in a town of Samaria. So it's not unfamiliar. It's on the heels of another evangelistic exchange, and that one is Jesus and a religious man, Nicodemus. His approach is different there. And That'd be another good study to analyze what was different in Jesus' approach to Nicodemus and his approach to the woman at the well. And then you could probably turn that upside down and analyze what is the same there. But for sake of time, we're just going to dive into John chapter 4 and just seek to glean some principles, some observations just from this narrative story. Uh, there's no point in our text here where Jesus takes an aside and preaches to his disciples or talks to us as the reader and says, now here's what you should do. So our Bible study has to take us from looking at the text and seeing what's there to ultimately deciding, okay, what does this mean for me? How do I apply this? So let's read a few of the verses uh, to get started, and uh, then we'll step back and see what we can find as we go through this story. John chapter 4. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up 
to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Let's start with that much of the story. We'll press on in a moment. Looking back over the story, really beginning the first verses, what are some observations we can make that would begin to shape both principles and applications regarding our approach to, let's call it evangelism, that sounds too professional, we'll call it outreach, if that sounds too practical, then let's stick to sharing the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Maybe you just take the first paragraph, verses 1 through 6, let's, let's tackle that much and see is there anything here in the narrative details that would help us think about sharing the gospel. What can you highlight for us? The humanity of Christ. Where do you see the humanity of Christ? Which isn't exactly in the gospel, but yet also it should be encouraging for us that at times when we become weary, yet still there's an opportunity. God can use even that. So verse 6, Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. So it's about high noon, the sixth hour, starting 6 a.m., Six hours till noon, wearied from the journey, he's sitting at the well. Uh, One observation would be, here's the humanity of Christ, wearied, physically tired, and yet, in that state of weariness, a story is unfolding about sharing the gospel. Uh, So there's something there. Um, You know, Peter would tell us to be ready always to give this defense, to share the good news, so that, that's not just ready with our answers, perhaps, but maybe ready in every scenario. You're in a bad way sitting at the waiting room at the doctor's office. You're, in a sense, sitting by the well because you are tired, and yet there's a broader plan in place there. Roy? Talk to people. So woman's going to show up, and Jesus is going to initiate a conversation. There in verse 7, maybe we need to abandon, just completely forsake the language of comfort zone. When it flies in the face of obedience to Christ, then there's no use talking about it. There's no use saying something about a comfort zone. There, There should be no such thing if we truly believed, like Jesus does, that there is living water that somebody desperately needs. So when that creeps into your mind, just realize okay, I I need to war against the awkward silence of sitting with people um, who, for all I know, know nothing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when I'm sitting somewhere or shopping somewhere and encountering people, and there's the awkwardness of we're here together, you know, you're waiting for something, you're standing in line, break the silence and speak. Begin building a bridge. You might not start off with, the wages of sin is death, but hopefully you can build a bridge and share something of the good news. Yeah. Pour into the receptive. He threw a gospel seed and it generated a response. He didn't get a little bit of a response and try to drive the uh, Mack truck of the Romans road down the throat. <laughs> so some kind of sensitivity to... Initial responses, is that kind of the thought there? All right, yeah, Brooks? I think Jesus approached her really simplistically and didn't start immediately talking to her about complex doctrines of the Trinity or something like that. He just said, I'm the living water, you know, like, and she was asking him what that meant. So it was a really simplistic, easy approach for somebody to understand. So... In our next paragraph, the woman from Samaria comes to draw water, and Jesus says to her, give me a drink. Well, we know he's wearied, so he probably would appreciate a drink, but we see from the rest of the story that this is, this is kind of a setup, right? He's, he has a plan to lead into a spiritual truth from this physical reality, uh, because verse 10, he's going to make the clear transition to living water. Um, 
and begin to focus on something more significant than the temporary thirst at high noon. Uh, So Jesus initiates the conversation. He's not sitting there awkwardly as she comes, draws water, and, you know, a few moments later walks away, which we would think is quite reasonable. Like, it's none of my business, you know, it's a busy well some parts of the day anyway. This is what people do, and I'm just sitting here, you know. We might not say it's none of my business, but we probably think that's kind of the social norm. So if he had sat there and ignored her, it would have been completely normal and even acceptable. Because remember, we have this Jew-Samaritan conflict that's brewing. Your text may have it in the parentheticals even. You know, remember, the Jews and Samaritans don't get along. Um, In Israel's history, the northern tribes of Israel... And the southern tribes of Judah were the two kingdoms. When the northern tribes were taken into captivity by the Assyrians, um, those conquering armies were good at kind of avoiding future rebellions. So they would repopulate conquered areas with mixed peoples. So instead of just conquering a place and trying to rule over them, they would put all kinds of new immigrants there. And so it's this whole mixed community. There's no real collective effort to rise up against the oppressor. So the northern tribes, which is now that region of Samaria, is this mixed group of people. It's a lot of the old history of Israel, but it's with all these other religions and peoples. So the Jews of Jerusalem and the southern tribes were thinking of those people as like a mixed breed. It was that derogatory thinking that they're not pure Jews, they're not true descendants of Father Abraham, Uh, a strong racial uh, divide. Um, And it's interesting that our text, you've probably seen it before, tells us that Jesus had to pass through Samaria, when in reality, history would tell us that the Jews always felt they had to go around Samaria. So they would travel a little further when heading from Galilee south to Jerusalem to avoid Samaria, Jesus is purposely going through it. He's going to face these differences and these kind of landmines of hatred. He's going to face them head on. So for him to talk to this woman, there's nothing in her voice that is, well, oh, thank you. You're such a sweet man to talk to me. She's kind of like, what are you doing? Like, why are you even talking to me? Um, Not because even she feels hated, but because she knows what hate is of the Jews as well. It's mutual. Um, We know this from racial tensions in our country. Uh, For people that are consumed by the the hate on either side, it's kind of a mutual disdain or at least disregard or fear, whatever it is, it can be mutual, and so it is in the text, which reminds us, too, that this whole story is hinged on not just even talking to somebody who is exactly like you or in your same suburb or, you know, you're comfortable with them. This is dealing with people that are totally outside of your realm of experience. Uh, This isn't the normal encounter. Uh, And yet, Jesus initiated the conversation, abandons this thought of silence, Uh, comfort zone, none of that. It's another opportunity to build a bridge. And so he begins talking. And he begins talking about something that's right there in the forefront of everybody's mind. It's something that's going on right there. It's it's part of everyday life. Um, And there's a lesson in that that helps us think, I, I need to get better at getting to the good news through a lot of different avenues. You know, Jesus could walk by a field And as we've just done, you know, they just cut all the beans on all these fields on Bly Road. Well, Jesus could walk by those beans as they were turning green and getting more and more brown and start saying, yep, it's not going to be long before the harvest. And immediately he transitions from that to teaching his disciples about what it means to go into the world and preach the gospel. So Jesus could get through all these different illustrations and avenues to the truth that needs to be addressed. So we need to learn how to do that. You need to be thinking a little bit more deeply about politics and when everybody's raging in their conversations about nations and 
Putin and Biden's administration and all these things, somehow we can take this idea of dominion and conquest or wars and get to something about ultimate dominion. Who's really in charge of all these kings? Who puts them up and takes them down? Because we have this truth. Jesus has this truth of living water, uh, and he's going to work it right into this conversation at the well. Uh, Jesus is the master of transitions, of illustrations, of turning a conversation from something everybody understood in a practical illustration of everyday life and suddenly making it very much about truth and its demands on our life. So every one of these people knew what it was to light a candle uh, and, and set it in the house when the sun went down up on a high point so that it could shed some light on what mom was doing and what dad was doing over here and the kids were trying to read you know, something from their lesson in the law. Everyone knew that that candle set up there would, would give light to the whole house. And Jesus takes that and everybody understands it and he, and he says, now let your light shine so that men will see your good works and glorify your Father. It'll cast light on what they're doing and the, and the way by which God is pleased. So get good at thinking about how do I take this conversation to a spiritual place so I can communicate truth. Verse 9, the Samaritan woman said, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me? There's that conflict, that tension. What can, we, what can we take from verse 10? What observation can we make about our sharing the gospel from verse 10? John chapter 4, verse 10. Well, we see where Jesus, you know, put aside all prejudice that a lot of the Jewish people had, you know, towards Samaritans. And, you know, he's reaching out to someone that, uh, other Jewish people would not even consider. As a matter of fact, a lot of times when they traveled, they would go around Samaria, you know, so they didn't even have to come across these folks. Sure. And so I think, you know, a lot of time in our lives, we come across people that, you know, we normally wouldn't want to associate with, uh, you know, and things of that nature. So there are a lot of those folks that, you know, we need to approach that. Usually, we wouldn't want to be around, you know, or take into consideration. Right, and they'll be in your path, perhaps even this week. Um, you, you didn't think, oh, I'm going to go and talk to that person or talk to this kind of a person when you woke up that morning, but the paths intersected, and there you sit at a well. Um, so be ready for those kind of people crossing your path. And here's what we say, verse 10. So what, what's there? That helps us think through sharing the gospel. Verse 10. Piggybacking off of, uh, I'm sorry, what was Carrie. Carrie. Um, not only the whole cultural difference and, you know, that situation, he offers, give me to drink thou wouldst have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. So not only is there an offering for the living water, you know, so interpreting that, that's forever, everlasting. That's, that's. So we've gone from the wet stuff in the well that actually satisfies, like he's wearied from a journey, it's middle of the day, but he's making align to the spiritual truth, satisfaction, uh, and it's perpetual. It's this living water. Um, we're not talking about the same water in the well, though that is life-sustaining in a sense, but that serves the greater illustration, that it's living water. What else? Verse 10. It just acknowledges that she doesn't know the truth. Right. That's the starting point is that, hey, you don't know the truth, so I'm going to help right. you understand. So from the very first words, if you knew, if you knew, um, like mark those words because the people you will encounter, you will encounter this week may not know. You, you know, you think they're, they're crazy. They're, they're, you know, they're, 
they're clamoring for, they're demanding the right to kill their babies, even after they're born. If, if you see the debates of this week, this, this insistence that even if the baby is born, they should still have the right to let it die. And it just, we're, we're thinking, what's wrong with you? But that, while that would be true of God's judgment on sinners, Christ in unfolding the reality of the need for living water recognizes she doesn't even know. There's there's no compass for this truth, for understanding what she desperately needs. He says, if you knew, um, and they don't. Now, we can argue from Romans 1 and Romans 2 that the law of God is written in their conscience. They should know something of these standards of God's righteousness. But the reality is they don't know that God has made a way in his mercy to save sinners through the sending of Jesus. Um, They don't know that Jesus came to earth to keep all the law of God so that his record of righteousness could be theirs. They don't know that. So they're going to busy themselves trying to be right, trying to do, trying to accomplish, trying to be a good person, and it's never enough. So they don't know. But what else in verse 10 then? Build on that. What else do we learn about sharing the gospel? There's a gift. This is all about this gift that God is giving. It's not deserved. It's not earned. It's not merited. And so all those people that frustrate us with their liberal ideas or their immoral living or their hatred of people of faith or conviction or morality, of course they don't deserve what God offers. They don't earn it. They don't merit it. But neither did you. You might not have been as blatantly immoral as they were in some of your actions, the way we kind of measure sin, but the reality is we had all come short of the glory of God. We had all sinned against him. We'd all rebelled against him. So none of us deserve what God does for us. If you knew the gift of God, and to think of one sitting at the well, and we know he's Jesus, the son of God, but he's also demonstrating for us what evangelism is, what sharing the gospel is. So think of one there at the well, having received the gift of God, this living water that satisfies, and just letting someone come to the well and walk away, and we never even tried to tell them that there was good news. Ezekiel said, this is the watchman on the wall who sees the trouble coming and doesn't warn anybody. And when the enemy comes and overtakes that city, the blood of those people is on the watchman's hands. You cannot sit at the well claiming introversion or comfort zone and not speak of a gift that you have received without calling into question if you've ever really opened that gift. It's a huge question mark. Enough of this, I'm a shy person. I I just don't know if you're a Christian. If you take this gift, claim to have opened it, it's this good news of living water, of satisfaction that everyone needs to hear of, and yet I never tell anyone. Why is it we could say somebody living in blatant adultery, we would question their faith? Like, surely that's not repentance and righteousness, and yet someone who blatantly refuses to share the gospel gets a pass on hoarding this good news and never telling anyone, never making an effort to build a bridge, always sits silently by as the stranger sits next to him, never engages in any way. We, we can't do that based on this story. Jesus had every right, politically, socially, personally. He's weary. He's a Jew. He doesn't belong in this part of the country. He's got disciples that he's training. Let them do it. Jesus has a lot of reasons for not speaking to this woman. And yet he does. Because he's driven by, she doesn't know that God is gracious to save sinners through the work that he's come to accomplish. 
it, it's, it's a stark contrast to so much of the way we think about lost people. And so Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God, and if you knew who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given that living water. That's what he does. On the <clears throat> living water part, it to kind of it seems like it ties in with that you'll know them by their fruit. Because if there is living water, there will be growth. Kind of like what you're saying, you're holding on this truth. Well, it, it has to, I think it maybe even in the, the wellspring, it's bubbling out. It's going to be bubbling out. You can't keep it in. Right. That living water, a wellspring just coming out. Uh, you can go down to Bennett Spring. Anyone been to Bennett Spring down there in central Missouri? Massive hole in the ground. That, and water just, I mean, it fills the, the little, the big spring areas as big as this room easily. This massive amount of water that just shapes a river. Just keeps coming out of there. Um, so it is with us. Now, are, are there moments of fear and awkwardness? And yes, we need to confess and realize I should have spoken up. I should have, yes. But it can't be our normal lifestyle that we, we just never share, we never speak, we never make known the gift. That doesn't reflect the life of a Christian. Uh, the struggle, the battle, the sin, the confession, I'll do, I can do better. I'm going to look for that next opportunity. Sure, we understand that. But don't hide behind that failure and just keep not sharing because you think you have some reason. Jesus modeled for us how we can share the gospel. Uh, Roy? I've never seen this before. My translation has a little bit of a note uh, back in, in 9, uh, for the Jews do not associate with the Samaritans, and the note adds, or do not use dishes Samaritans have used. Mm. So choosing to break that norm, I think that probably has some application in our day with some of the tensions, especially cross-ethnic groups. Right, you know, the, the note that Roy's referencing is like a historical help to know that here's this woman, she has a pitcher to draw with, and she tells Jesus, you don't even have anything to draw water with. The point being, a Jew can't drink out of the pitcher the Samaritan uses, okay? So most of us are too young to remember. Some of you do in the room remember, you know, uh, black-only bathrooms or white-only water fountains, um, maybe you've seen that in the movies and stuff that have the racial divides. Um, but that, that wasn't new to 1960s America. That was the way nations and people, groups, and differences have always manifested themselves in, in sinful hatred. So uh, that, that tension is real, uh, and yet Jesus will have no part of it. What, the truth he is speaking of uh, transcends all of that, what ultimately is frivolous uh, humanity. Verse 14, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. That water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. What does this tell us about the gospel or the sharing of it? What does it tell us about the people that we're sharing it with? That they want something more. Yeah. Jesus is saying, now he's speaking spiritually, like you're looking at Jesus and this woman, and they're starting to talk on different levels. Jesus is on this living water, and she's, she's on this physical water. But Jesus is saying, listen, you know, anyone who drinks this water uh, will not be thirsty anymore. The woman says, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Okay, we're on different planes. We might be getting closer together. Um, but what we're seeing is this, this woman is longing for something more. Whatever she's doing in this life, I'd be glad for something that's a little better than this. Jesus is now going to take his language of living water and 
her talk of the water at this well, and he's going to demand that they get smashed together. He's going to force her into his line of thinking. He's talking about satisfying this big hole in her heart. She's thinking about satisfying, oh, I could save some time by not having to come to the well and be thirsty. I wouldn't be thirsty anymore. That would be a satisfaction. But Jesus is saying, I'm aiming for something bigger than that. There's this hole in your heart, in your soul that needs fixing. Uh, You know, you hear of like, you know, little kids born with a hole in their heart. Sometimes it closes up. Sometimes it needs surgery. Well, spiritually speaking, this woman is longing for satisfaction and can't find it anywhere. And Jesus is trying to tell her, I've got living water that'll meet that thirst. But she's thinking physical thirst. She isn't thinking, let's get real and tell them my real problems. So look what Jesus says next when she says, give me this water so that I don't have to come to this well anymore. Jesus says to her, go call your husband and come here. What does that have to do with her request to give her water so she doesn't have to come to the well? Jesus is going to insist that she start thinking on the higher level, the truer need for satisfaction. And he puts his finger right on this place of what for her in her adult life has been lifelong frustration, a craving that has never been satisfied. Go call your husband. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Okay, just avoid this. Like, I'm not going down that path. This guy, I'm just going to tell him I don't even have a husband. So that's what she says. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one that you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. So when she said I don't have a husband, right then she was accurate. She's living with somebody hoping that'll be better than the other four tries, five tries. And clearly this woman, you know, has probably been mistreated, abused, overlooked, cast aside. Um, I'm not saying she didn't have her rough edges either, but clearly even in that culture, she's been through it and it isn't finding any place to know love, to express love, to be loved. Uh, Jesus has just identified a really clear, obvious place of frustration, of thirst. And he's not doing this to be mean. You'll see by her response, she is even going to engage at a deeper level in response to this. She immediately knows this conversation has just gone in a direction that would never happen with a normal stranger. Something is suddenly very abnormal. The woman says, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Her best, her best attempt to identify this sorcery, like how in the world would he have known this? She knows something is up. Some kind of spiritual ability is there. And she labels that as a prophet. You must have some kind of insight from God. But then she dives into a religious defense. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship, you being a Jew. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Again, this conversation began with identifying true thirst. I think if you can realize that the people that you will be sharing the gospel with are searching for satisfaction, it'll help you understand what you're offering. You're not saying you need to be a good person like me or you need to go to church where I go to church or you need to stop smoking or getting drunk or whatever. Like It's not about like patching up behavior or looking more like me and my family. No, it's addressing the need, uh, the brokenness, the, the, the constant craving for something to satisfy and never finding it. Believing one lie of the devil after another, going down that path only to be frustrated as Adam and Eve were. 
here, do this, do your way, it'll turn out fine. And they take up the tree and face God's judgment. Mm, bad idea. And yet that's the life of unbelief, constantly looking for something to satisfy. So that's where Jesus begins leading this woman into this spiritual understanding. He illustrates the dissatisfaction, the need, the thirst, and now he's going to show her the truer need and thirst. She wants to kind of sidetrack the conversation or at least get bogged down in religion. And, I, and I'm sure you've been there. If you've talked at all about your faith with somebody, they want, they'll tell you about their faith and why it works for them and, and what they're good at and how, how long they've done it or whatever it is. They'll, have, they'll immediately start the chess match with you uh, because you're pressing in. You're trying to get to the thirst, and they're not going to want to let on that they're thirsty. They're going to say, I've got my pot of water. See, I've been doing this for a long time, or I was raised in the church. I'm, I'm not thirsty. I got what I need. And Jesus just doesn't get bogged down there. Uh, mountains and, and, and who and what and where and why and how. Jesus just says, listen, because of his life and ministry, he says, the hour is coming and that's through him, that it's not going to matter what mountain you were on. It's not going to matter that the Jews have a temple in Jerusalem where they make sacrifices, and there's a holy place and a holy of holies. Uh, you know, in, in a few months, Jesus is going to be on a cross, and that temple veil is going to be torn in two, and God's going to close the door on that experience of where to worship at a particular mountain, and all attention now is going to be on this Jesus, righteous, crucified, and now risen again. Look at him, because through him, we will worship the Father. Not through a building uh, where we can tell the Samaritans, no, not your mountain, our mountain. Jesus is saying, no, that, that era is coming to a close. Those pictures and types of the temple and its sacrifices are going to have their fulfillment in Christ he will be the way to the Father. And so Jesus gets, it, no, we're not talking about your religious experience. Do you know God the Father? That's his point. He's going to take us right to the source, to God himself, the creator, the one who sent this Jesus who's talking. There's the focus. We're now on this path. It's not, well, yeah, I guess those are good works, or what does your religion believe? No. Do you know what God has said in the Bible? Do you know who God is? So don't get bogged down in religion. It's not that you don't make any effort to understand. There are volumes written on better understanding Islam or Mormonism or the Jehovah's Witnesses or any other denomination or worldview. Not so that you can argue every error in their understanding, but so just you can know where they're coming from. And though we have the answer. We have the answer for that. Every shortcoming I could point to in those worldviews is found in Scripture. Ultimately, the revelation of God. So, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when all eyes will be on the Father. That will be what true worship is. And note, in the following verses, Jesus isn't alarmed by theological conversation. Um, while he's not going to get bogged down in religion, here or there, or who's got it right, no, the right is, what has God said? Who is he? And how do we relate to him? Where do we stand with him in light of our sinfulness? The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. See, there's that, there's that Jewish history that still exists, even though they're mixed with some other people groups and worldviews, they know Something of hope. A Messiah is coming. We can believe what he says. He will have the answers. 
He'll have the hope that we're looking for. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Which reminds us that anytime we're sharing the gospel, uh, yes, ultimately it's about what God has revealed, where we stand before God. That's, that's what we're addressing. That's the context. But the specific topic of our conversation in the good news is Jesus. The hope that you're looking for, the satisfaction you're looking for, that what you're hungering for, thirsting for, the answer is found in Jesus. You think you need to be a good person. The only hope of that is the record of Jesus' righteousness applied to your account. You maybe recognize you've done some bad stuff. The only hope of forgiveness is the atonement made by Jesus. You think you, you're going to live forever somewhere. It's going to be a big party. No, the only hope of eternal life is Jesus. And so Jesus makes it clear to the woman what you're searching for, what you think you're hoping for is who I am. And he's going to define true worshipers, not purely in a theological, systematic way, but write it a well, saying to this woman, you could be a true worshiper if you'll believe that I am the one sent by God for the salvation of sinners. So the true worship discussion isn't, isn't just for the worship wars and how we conduct liturgical worship in the church. Um, it, it's ultimately about who do I think Jesus is? Is he the means by which I encounter the Father? Jesus is the goal, so aim for him in your sharing the gospel. Like I said, outreach may happen this week, and you may not get to talk about Jesus. Uh, you may not know this person and, and know what's the deepest need. What are they really struggling with? What are they longing for? But this week in your outreach, you might begin building a bridge. And by that, think of like laying planks across the bridge, and you're, and you're moving towards that person and understanding because what you're hoping to do is speak of Jesus. In this conversation, it didn't take long. It's just a few moments from Jesus is sitting there resting and sees the woman coming, and he initiates a conversation about the water in the well, and it turns to a greater thirst in the soul. That conversation may happen in a matter of minutes for you with a stranger as God leads and provides you with words to say. But it, it might take months, and it might be multiple encounters with that new neighbor that moves in down the street. And the first time, it's just a greeting or a welcome, or you give them your phone number and say, hey, if you need anything, call me. And, and you laid a plank, and you, what you're doing is you're reaching out in order to Get to Jesus. You're aiming for Jesus. That's what they need to hear. They need the living water. They don't need your meatloaf. They don't need your phone number. They don't need to borrow your tools. That's not their greatest need. Those kinds of outreach things are serving you so that you can give them what they really need, the living water. Because if they died without Christ, it won't matter how much meatloaf you gave them, right? So, don't be confused by thinking the bridge building is the gospel. No, it serves the gospel. So it's, it's God's work. Don't, don't think it's not. We're not diminishing those things. We're just saying, see in them the opportunity. See their, see their power as a tool of the gospel. That's the hope that we have because all of us probably have a heart like that, that we can do something. We might need to muster up the courage or think through, okay, how am I going to say this? Because we're not as comfortable with that. But don't neglect either. Let's, let's do the reaching out. Let's sit at the well and talk to the person. And then let's be asking God to make us a little bit better at getting to the spiritual reality. What do they really need? They, they don't even need, you know, their marriage repaired if it's fallen apart, and that's what they're telling you. That would be a wonderful result of God's kindness if, if, if the marriage would stay together. We would want that. 
but what they need is ultimately Christ. So all those needs, gather them all up in your mind and be thinking, but, but what do they really need? What's the big deal? It's Christ. Therein is the hope for their marriage, the hope for, you know, their fears and uncertainties. Whatever their need is, Jesus is saying, get quickly to what he provides. Look at verse 31. The disciples come back, and they're urging him, Rabbi, eat. They went to the trouble to get this food. They've missed this whole encounter with the woman. But he says to them in 32, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has someone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. What does this mean for us by way of application? Let me tell you what it doesn't mean. Jesus was superhuman. So unlike his disciples, he didn't need to eat real food because he had this other kind of food, right? No, he, he had a human body. It burned calories like mine and yours, okay? He needed to eat. If he didn't eat, he would eventually starve to death. Um, that, that would be the nature of his full humanity. So what is Jesus saying when he says, no, no I, don't, I have food to eat? What is he saying there that means anything for us in our sharing of the gospel? Roy? Roy used the word energized. He's energized by following the Spirit's prompting and sharing the gospel. What else? How else would we define this? I have this food. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. Well, as the Son of uh, God, Jesus Christ, uh, I believe his main purpose and goal was to outreach and spread the word and spread the gospel and to all of the lost, unknown, you know, the uh, outcasts, the whatever have you call them, uh, who am I to judge? I think that was his, in a sense, mentality. That's why he was able to serve and provide and do what was necessary. So Jesus comes to seek and to save the ones who are lost. So there's his purpose. So fulfilling his purpose, Roy says he's energized by it. How else would you, how, how would you apply this to our evangelism? But just as our physical bodies, you know, need food and water, our souls need to be nourished. And this is nourishment to Jesus, you know, doing the will of the Father, uh, us, you know, taking in God's word. Uh, these things nourish our souls. So there's a nourishment factor here. The disciples go to town to get food because they're hungry. They need to satisfy this desire, this want, this need. They bring the food back, and Jesus says, I have this other food that, that satisfies, that, that meets the need. Um, so I think we just have to recognize that we should have this longing for the well encounters. We, we, should, we should approach this week with like a desire. It'd almost be like uh, two weeks from now, you know, Thanksgiving will be on Thursday. Is that three weeks? And, you know... On that week or on that day, it's going to be like the big buildup. Here's the big meal, and we all know it's going to be filling and satisfying. Jesus is saying that, that's, what, that's what sharing the gospel is like. Um, or we could add in there the outreach that is facilitating our sharing the gospel. We're, we're longing for that moment when we can shine that light of Christ into the darkness and the neediness and the emptiness of people's lives. Um, so don't, it, it, there's not some kind of weird mystical food. He, he again is using 
an example, an illustration of something real and physical to communicate a spiritual truth. The disciples come back like, all right, we did it. We got the food we need. And Jesus is like, yeah, I know, I did it. And I have the food I need. Um, I'm satisfied. I'm fulfilled. I feel like I, I'm, I'm topped off by sharing the good news. There's something there that should remind us that we should long for these moments. And I think that longing, that satisfied, accomplished kind of task is why at the beginning of our story it says Jesus had to go through Samaria. Why? Because he was hungry. Hungry for what? Not Samaritan cuisine, but gospel sharing satisfaction. He was hungry for that. Had to go to Samaria. I'm going to sit at a well and I'm going to Wait for that awkward moment when a stranger comes up and I'm just going to talk. Just going to be a nice person, but unknowingly to them, a nice person with a driving agenda. I, I want them to know what I know. If they only knew the gift of God. If they knew how good God was. Man, they, they, would, they would be drawing water from that well which is found in Christ. So Lord, help us to... Learn from Jesus' example. Uh, Help us not to just put our heads down and get so busy with our routine this week um, that that we miss these encounters um, that you would ordain for us. Uh, Thank you for the gift of God, which is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Uh, May we rejoice in that gift and be quick and ready uh, to announce that good news to others. In this season of bounty, thanksgiving, which so naturally feeds into the season of giving and receiving and celebrating your good gift to us. Uh, May this passage and this encounter of Jesus and this woman uh, be in the forefront of our minds. Uh, may May your Holy Spirit call it to our minds in these coming weeks and months uh, so that we will be ready to to share uh, the good news. Help us with this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.